What's next in innovation? That's not the right question. It's where. Puerto Rico is more than just a tropical paradise. It's an innovations paradise where startups and global players coexist in a vast and vibrant ecosystem where talent runs deep, highly skilled, and bilingual. Plus, Puerto Rico has the most competitive tax incentives in the U.S. If you believe your business can go anywhere, this is the place to bring it. Find out more at investpr.org slash economist. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. America's graduates are saddled with crippling debts, paying off high-rate student loans for degrees that might not have boosted their earnings much. Even bankruptcy might not be an option. We look at the systemic problems behind the crisis and how to fix them. And a landmark bill passing through Scotland's parliament would make sanitary pads and tampons available for free to every woman in the nation. That would be a world first, and another sign that Scotland is willing to enact radical social legislation. First up, though. For months, much of the world has watched the story of the new coronavirus unfold from a distance. Now it's facing up to the reality of the spread of COVID-19. Yesterday, California declared a state of emergency after announcing its first coronavirus fatality. That brings America's death toll from the disease to 11. Britain reported its largest day-on-day increase in diagnoses yet. 87 people have now been infected. Italy, where 107 people have died, has closed down every school in the country for at least 10 days. Every sporting event will be held behind closed doors. In India, citizens have been advised not to travel anywhere that is affected by the virus. That may soon be most of the world's countries. Yet despite the spread, not every government is doing all that it should to prepare. So countries that have very few cases in the range of, you know, about 100 or 200 cases are preparing for a much bigger outbreak. Slavea Chankova is our healthcare correspondent. In some cases, there is a reasonable suspicion that countries are actually underreporting or perhaps uh, not looking for cases. So they're just not testing very broadly. In fact, the World Health Organization has advised countries uh, that already have cases uh, to start testing more broadly, including people with symptoms of pneumonia and people who perhaps uh, have flu-like symptoms but test negative for the flu. When you say countries that don't yet have widespread outbreaks are preparing, what kind of, of policies of preparation are there? First and foremost, it's uh, communicating to people that, you know, they should expect uh, things like uh, schools being closed, mass public gatherings being canceled, people being advised to work from home. So that's one uh, way to prepare, just communicate and have everybody plan and then behind the scenes, governments are preparing their healthcare systems. So we know that with this disease, people who are hospitalized need uh, ventilators. Those are breathing machines, which they may need for uh, quite a long period of time. So hospitals have to have some planning around this sort of excess capacity that they would need to have uh, if an outbreak occurs. 
that would require postponing non-essential uh, or elective uh, operations, that would require having fewer people coming to hospital for uh, various appointments, so uh, expanding the use of telemedicine, so you know people just having consultation remotely rather than coming in a hospital. The NHS here has talked about bringing back recently retired uh, doctors and nurses uh, if there is a shortage of staff. So these are some of the measures that countries are considering at the moment. But the most powerful tool is knowing precisely who's been infected. In America yesterday, the White House said it would expand testing for the disease nationally after falsely blaming the Obama administration for a policy change that slowed testing down. There are now at least 150 diagnosed cases in 16 states. 10 of America's 11 deaths were in Washington state, but the outbreak has also flared up in Texas and Nebraska. The first couple of weeks that America had to get its act together for the coronavirus have not gone well. Idris Kaloun is our U.S. policy correspondent. The administration was more focused on downplaying the threat of the coronavirus as opposed to preparing for it. And the CDC tried to create its own test. It should have been testing lots of cities, basically, to try and contain the outbreak, which would, be, would have been inevitable. And the test didn't work. The first batches that were sent didn't operate as they should have. And that meant that uh, America's public health authorities were effectively flying blind in the first couple of weeks that they had to really get a grip on the virus before it started to spread, as it has in so many other countries. And, and no discussion of America's healthcare system doesn't end up in, in questions of, of finance. Is that having an effect on way, the way things are going here? Yeah, absolutely. So in America, 29 million people are uninsured, which means that if they go to the hospital, they could be liable for paying the full cost of care, which often is many times more than you would pay if you had insurance. So for some people, that could act as a big disincentive to get treatment. There are also many millions of people who have health insurance but who are nonetheless underinsured, meaning that they have high deductibles or if they go to the hospital, they have to pay a reasonably high share of the cost, which means that for them as well, if they were to start getting sick or, or feel ill, they might not want to go because they, they worry about the bills that they would have to receive. There is also another problem in, in America, which is access to paid sick leave. All of those things, I think, could make fighting the epidemic in America a lot more difficult than it would in a Western European country with the universal healthcare system. And how is the American government responding now? The Trump administration has floated the idea of compensating the uninsured for coronavirus treatment, although we don't have full details yet. Congress is working on a, a package to uh, pay for the coronavirus response, but we don't yet have details. In America, as elsewhere, one of the biggest concerns for more widespread outbreaks is that health systems will be overwhelmed as both fears and diagnoses grow. That threat is even greater in poorer regions. In Africa, very few countries have sufficient hospital capacity or the kind of specialist respiratory equipment that's been deployed in China. That makes stopping infections in the first place even more pressing. So the plan in Africa at the moment is really to focus very much on containment. Kinley Salmon is our Africa correspondent. That means tracking people who have been identified to have uh, the disease and then looking at who they've been into contact with and keeping really close surveillance on all of that. There have been uh, some useful lessons from the Ebola crisis, particularly in West Africa, uh, on how to do this well. Because it also means that communication is important, getting people to wash their hands and to know what to do if they are infected, to call in and inform people and so on. Uh, and so 
Uh, that's also particularly important in Africa because so much of the population is young and reaching those people is not always as easy as it is to reach people who are older. And so using uh, mediums like WhatsApp, Instagram, for example, or radio can be really effective. Another thing that really helps is content that goes viral. And so, for example, a Nigerian comedian, Debo Adidayo, has created a viral skit that's already proved very popular, suggesting how people can you know, tackle some of the, the risk factors for COVID-19. You, you take it by using mask. You don't know that. You need to be careful of your surroundings, your immediate environment. Oh, and if I told you, use hand sanitizer, you wash your hand regularly. In terms of dealing with outbreaks once they occur, Nigeria and a number of countries in, in the region actually have quite a lot of experience with this because there are, unfortunately, other kinds of diseases which they also have to deal with outbreaks of fairly regularly. A team from Nigeria's Center for Disease Control actually goes out about every week to investigate a new outbreak of some disease. And so there is some experience of, of how to do this. They use a particular app that allows you know, health workers to input information, have it quickly centralized so that people can be tracked and so on. Uh, I think the challenge is much greater if the scale is so vast that the, the challenge for these countries becomes more about dealing with people who are already sick than stopping more people from getting sick. At that point, the lack of capacity in hospitals uh, will be a real problem. Levea, hearing the, these stories as kind of like natural experiments where we're, we're seeing the, the, the responses and, and the effects of those responses the governments have, it, it's tempting to ask if the, you see a kind of a set of universal prescriptions, things that governments should do if they don't yet see widespread outbreaks, things that, that make good sense knowing what we now know. Well, the key is really to prepare. Right now what's happening is in some countries the message seems to be this is not very bad, people think it's just like the flu. That is not the case. It is a very serious disease that can overwhelm your healthcare system. Mortality in certain groups is uh, more than 15% based on data from China. So this is a really, really serious illness. That message must get through so that people are better prepared when they're asked to stay home, when football games, concerts start being canceled, people understand why they're doing this. The second thing is that countries must really start testing for this more broadly because if they don't, then uh, most certainly the silent chains of transmissions that are probably going on are going to go undetected for way too long to the point that they start seeing them when massive outbreaks occur. At that time, it will be uh, too late and containing outbreaks will be very, very difficult. So the overarching message is countries have to get their act together now because they're running out of time. Sylvia, thanks very much for your time. Thank you, Jason. World peace might feel kind of like a pipe dream. But what if I told you it's not? 2024 will see more than 50 elections around the world. And in some places, peace is actually on the ballot. One reason is because countries in Europe and Latin America have been experimenting with this thing called feminist foreign policy. Because right now, the way that we wage war and peace, it's kind of a boys club. The new season of Things That Go Boom from Inkstick Media and PRX is coming March 18th. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. For many Americans, college years were some of the best times of their lives. They certainly were for me. It's only afterwards that the reality of having to pay for those years sinks in. 
many former students are struggling to repay even modest debts that are hard to escape from, even through bankruptcy. Former President Barack Obama only paid off his loans in his 40s. Right when we wanted to start saving for Sasha and Malia's college education, we were still paying off our own college education. We were lucky. We, we had more resources than many. American universities are consistently ranked the best in the world. Their student finance system is consistently ranked among the worst. Tom Burrell is finance correspondent at The Economist. At $1.6 trillion, American student loan debt is larger than national debt of most countries. Tuition fees are much higher in America than the rest of the world. So it requires a larger amount of financing to pay for them. But the financing system itself is is coming under fire. Why is that? What's wrong with the way the financing gets done? The primary reason is the fact that the terms that individuals can borrow at are prohibitive and place a lot more of the burden on the student than other comparative systems across the world. What are the reasons for that? Number one is the fact that at what point students are required to start paying their debt back. And in America, that's immediate, whereas in other places in the world, the United Kingdom, for instance, it's only when they reach a certain income level. In the UK, it's £25,000. The second thing is the high cost of borrowing rates in the United States. So the average interest rate in the last 10, 15 years has been about 6.5%. So this puts a significant burden on the student borrower, particularly as wage growth has only been around... 2% during that period as well. So the problem then ends up being that the debt will compound. And with wage growth sluggish, it's very hard for the students to service them. And so that debt is piling up really fast for a lot of people. What about people who simply can't pay it back? A particular type of student really suffers from that. And that tends to be the case of students who've started their college degrees but haven't completed them, meaning that they've got the debt built up and they haven't got the qualification that comes with it to pay it back. The way economists like to think about education is education is an investment. The fees are the cost of the investment. The cost of the financing is the the interest rate you pay. And the benefits from it should be the uplift in wages you get upon graduation. When we have other comparative investment projects, it tends to be the case that you have bankruptcy protection. But in the United States for student debt, the bankruptcy protections are extremely limited. What that means is if a student leaves university, completes a degree, they don't get a good job immediately upon leaving, then debt can just continue to build up and they have limited options in how to solve it. So all told, how many people then are are struggling with their student debt? So the figure that surveys report is around 20% of Americans. But the other important thing to note about that is some of the disparities in debt distress. For example, a black student on graduation tends to owe more than $7,000 than a non-black student. Other surprising thing is that despite representing just over 50% of students, women actually owe two-thirds of student debt. And why is that? Whilst women have access to the same amount of credit... Upon entering the job market, the gender wage gap means that they have problems servicing that debt. So some of this problem starts simply because it's so expensive to go to university in America. What are the universities and colleges doing with the money that they're gathering up? Well, some of the evidence suggests fees that students are paying are not even going to improve the education that they're receiving. It's much easier for universities to splash money on flashy stadiums, lazy rivers, new basketball nets and other large purchases that that probably don't help students once they enter the job market. It does also seem to be the case that some universities think that there's some signaling effect in charging large fees to suggest that they are a good place to get your education. 
What about the other end of the spectrum, though? I mean, certainly in the UK until not so long ago, higher education was free altogether. What about that as a model? So then you know where the money is coming from and going to and no one gets debt distressed. When we think about education provision, there is clearly a trade-off between fairness of people who have to pay for others to go to education against the fact that society often wants young individuals to go and get a degree because it will benefit the economy and also tends to have other positive externalities for society. You have lower crime rates, you have a much more cohesive sort of social bonds. So is this an issue that's now being taken up politically? I mean, how are some of the presidential hopefuls addressing it? When presidential candidates Sanders, Warren, Co think about what education reform to make, they need to separate the past and the future. So what should we do going forward and what systems should we operate? And then what should we do with the problems that we've accumulated in the past? So Sanders, his solution is that we should just write off all the problems from the past. Unsurprisingly, that's curried favour with the people that have that debt. But other Americans who chose not to go to college because they couldn't afford it or chose to be very frugal and took two jobs while they were at college. Why should they be disadvantaged by this policy? So do you think America should look to Britain for guidance on on how to finance higher education more generally? There is this trade-off of of fairness and efficiency, and it seems as though the UK has struck that balance pretty well. There is a subsidy provided by the taxpayer for students who attend university and then struggle to pay. And that subsidy is the fact that you don't have to pay until you reach a certain income. And that also doesn't deter potential students from attending university. There's immediately uh, pay-as-you-earn collections rather than any complicated forms. And the other thing is the fact that after 30 years, student debt is forgiven. So there's not always this albatross hanging over your head as there might be from debt that's accumulated in America. So you've given us a bit of the sort of economist's view of these things, not the capital E economist, but the lowercase e economist's view of of this matter. But like as a bottom line, is college education still a good way for people to spend their money or a good kind of debt to take on? Studies still seem to show that the returns from a college education are positive. It is worthwhile thinking about the particular subjects where the returns vary. You know, the science, technology, engineering, mathematics subjects, STEM, seem to offer a better return. So that should be an input into prospective students' decisions. But it's reasonable to think about the non-monetary benefits as well, not just thinking about your future job. Right at the moment, I'm actually studying via Skype with my father, the philosophy of the German Enlightenment philosopher, Hegel. I'm not sure that's necessarily going to help me in my career, but certainly might help me in my way to interpret the world and think about life. Tom, thanks very much for coming in. Thank you, Jason. In many countries, there are women who struggle to afford basic sanitary products. But it hasn't traditionally been an issue that politicians have grappled with. Now, a groundbreaking bill is progressing through the Scottish Parliament that would make tampons and pads freely available to anyone in the country who needs them. And lawmakers there have been hearing from some of the women affected by the problem. So Michelle Fisher is a woman in Scotland who contributed to a consultation that the government did about the need for free period products in the country. Amy Hawkins reports for The Economist in London. And she said that when she was a teenager, money was very tight, and despite experiencing extremely heavy periods, she would only use one or two tampons a day, and she once bled through onto a chair at school, which was very embarrassing. 
And she said, so now, despite no longer being a teenager, she still feels restricted buying products because she feels like she doesn't have enough money and the memories of not being able to afford period products stay with her. And Michelle's story is is not an uncommon one. No, Michelle's story is not uncommon. Studies have found that around one in five women have struggled to access period products in their life, whether that's because they can't afford it or because of stigma. So yeah, it's not uncommon to have an experience like that. And so that consultation has now turned into a bill. What, What is that bill proposing exactly? So Scotland already offers free period products in schools, but this bill takes that further and says that free period products should be available nationwide to all women. To put this in context, the average period lasts about five days and buying tampons and pads can cost about £8 a month. But for some women who experience very heavy periods or have medical conditions such as endometriosis, that can go up to £50 a month. I mean, I've heard of of initiatives of this sort before, but this, this seems more sweeping. Yes, so if this bill becomes law, it will be the first country in the world to offer free universal period products. Other places do already offer free period products in schools. England, for example, and some states in America and other countries have cut taxes on the products. But yeah, this bill offers the widest provision of pads in the world, costing about £24 million a year. And how has the debate over, over the bill been so far? So the woman behind the bill is Monica Lennon. She's a Labour member of the Scottish Parliament. Women and girls are too often left behind in the political process. This is a chance to put them first. Who initiated the first conversation about the cost of periods in the Scottish Chamber's history in 2016. In 2020, she had all these old male MSPs talking about bloody tampons and endometriosis, so it's quite an achievement. When three of us visited Perth, I had my eyes opened. I asked what people were paying every month. And one very impressive young lady who suffers from endometriosis that period products and conversations with parents or guardians can often be hugely embarrassing and difficult. It's about equality, it's about education, it's about uh, dignity. Somebody said to me recently, if it was men that needed these sanitary products, they would have been free years ago. So there really hasn't been any resistance to this bill passing at all? No, when it was voted in the Scottish Parliament last week, no one voted against and there was one abstention. So why do you think it is that Scottish politicians in particular have been so keen to to tackle this in comparison to England, which already has provisions kind of approaching it? I think one reason is the prevalence of women in Scottish politics. Um, So Obviously, they have a first minister who's female, Nicola Sturgeon, and Monica Lennon has been pushing this bill from as soon as she entered Parliament in 2016. And also the Scottish cabinet is more than half female compared with only a quarter in Westminster. So that's one reason why women's health issues might be becoming more prominent in Scotland. Another reason is that it could also be an indication of the Scottish government's appetite for radical social legislation. For example, that Scotland provides free university tuition, they ban smoking in public places, they set a minimum price on alcohol. And these kind of things are kind of widening the gap between Scotland and England already. Amy, thanks very much for your time. Thank you. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. And you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash radio offer. 12 issues for $12 or £12. See you back here tomorrow.
world peace might feel kind of like a pipe dream. But what if I told you it's not? 2024 will see more than 50 elections around the world. And in some places, peace is actually on the ballot. One reason is because countries in Europe and Latin America have been experimenting with this thing called feminist foreign policy. Because right now, the way that we wage war and peace, it's kind of a boys club. The new season of Things That Go Boom from Inkstick Media and PRX is coming March 18th. Find it wherever you get your podcasts.